Take your Bible and turn to uh, John chapter 17. We'll get there in just a few minutes. You know, with all of the chaos going on right now politically and socially and with all the injustice and dishonesty and the deception and hypocrisy and violence and uh, the growing censorship and, and uh, I, I'm not going to rehearse the specifics of all that. You have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what I'm talking about. But with everything going on right now in the country, the question for all of us is this. Now, this is a question I've been thinking about for a long time. I pray about this question because I think this is the most important question for a time such as we're in right now. The question is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus for such a time as this? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of all of this? And back in the summer, I ran across something that defined what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's from Dallas Willard, and it's really good. It's really thought-provoking. So here it is again. Here's Dallas Willard's definition of a disciple. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. I, I love that. In, in these troubling days, the most important thing that you and I can be doing is learning how to do what Jesus said to do and to be constantly revising our affairs to carry through on our decision to follow Jesus. And that's what we do, that's what we try to do every Sunday morning in here. We open up God's word and we're seeking to learn how to do what Jesus has told us to do, and that means we have to constantly think about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And we have to constantly be evaluating and revising how we're living to bring our lives more in line with what Jesus has called us to do. And we're gonna learn more about what Jesus tells us to do today. If you're just joining us for some time now, we've been working our way, studying our way through the Gospel of John, and we've come to chapter 17, and we've kind of camped here. Uh, we're gonna have six messages in John 17, and it, because it's such an important chapter. Uh, this chapter is commonly referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, but for me, it's uh, the real Lord's prayer, because on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, on the night before he will die on the cross, Jesus prays for his church, and he prays for the disciples, the apostles who are there with him that night, and then he prays for all those who will come to know him through their eyewitness testimony and through their preaching, which ultimately gets passed down from one generation to the next through what we have come to hold in our hands as our New Testament, until 1,900 years later, it's come to us and so in John 17, in John 17, Jesus is praying for you and me and FG. Now, honestly, I cannot think of a more important passage of Scripture for such a time as this because in this prayer, we hear Jesus' heart for his church. We hear what Jesus wants most for us. And knowing that Jesus prayed for us just before he died should cause us as his church to want to know 
what he's praying for so that we can be an answer to his prayer. Because here's the deal. Jesus knows that after he dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends back to his Father in heaven, he knows his disciples will be hated by the world just like he was hated by the world. He knows the hurt and hostility they will encounter, and he knows the hurt and hostility that we will encounter. So he prays and he asks his heavenly Father to protect us from the evil one by sanctifying us in truth. That is, and we, we looked at this in a previous message, but sanctify, to be sanctified in truth is we're praying that God would make us holy as he is holy, that we would be distinctly different, that we would live distinctly different lives from the world. He does not pray for us to be taken out of the world, but that we would be set apart to God as we're in the world. And he asked the Father to make us one. He prays for our unity, that we would be one with each other as he and the Father are one. And he prays for these two things, uh, holiness and unity. He prays for this in the context of mission. You see, the power of the church's mission is interconnected with our living as God's holy set-apart people and with us pursuing unity in our diversity. In other words, as we see ourselves set apart by God in the truth of God, and as we see ourselves as unified in the essential truths of the gospel, and we begin and we live this way as God's holy, unified people, some in the world will take notice and some will begin to want to know more about who Jesus really is. Now, so think about being on mission like this. It's uh, like two interconnected uh, circles. We're com uh, Jesus is praying for our holiness, and he's praying for us to be unified, and being holy and being unified are, are essential ingredients for our mission. A unified church set apart in the truth of the gospel is a church that can have a powerful influence in our community. So today I want to focus on mission, on what Jesus prays for us when he prays, prays for us to pursue life and mission with him. And to get us started, I'm going to read from John 17, 13 to 20. And I'm going to, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to be referring to other verses in the chapter, but our focus passage is John 17, 13 to 20. And I'm going to be reading this morning from the CBV. That's the Charlie Boyd version, okay? Like I, when I read a long passage of scripture, a lot of times I like to do it in the simplest, easiest, understandable language, and hence the Charlie Boyd version, all right? Verse 13, Jesus prays, Father, now I'm coming to you. I told my disciples many things while I was in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So make them holy in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I give myself as a holy sacrifice, so they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, 
but also for all of those who will ever believe in me through their message. So one of the key themes of this text is mission. And I hear you, I hear you're going, but Charlie, I don't see the word mission in the passage. Right, the word is there though. The word is there twice. The word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send or to be sent. So when Jesus prays in verse 18, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I send them into the world. What he's actually praying is, Father, I have given them the same mission that you gave me. I'm, you, I'm giving them the same mission you gave me. You and I have been sent, and we are being sent into this world full of confusion and chaos. He's sending us into a world that's growing more and more hostile to our faith, Every day, a world that is growing darker and darker. And, and we, you, me, FG, we are being sent by Jesus to do what the Father sent Jesus to do. So what is that? What did the Father send Jesus to do? What was Jesus' God-given mission? Well, I mean, you could answer that question the way that Jesus answered that question, and he answered it kind of in the same way but in different ways. For example, in Mark Chapter 10, verse 45, he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's mission talk. In Luke 19, 10, he said, for the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost, mission. Uh, John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, I've been sent from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, or uh, John 12, 46, when Jesus says, I've come into the world so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And I could go on. There are a lot of verses that tell us why Jesus came and what his God-given mission was all about. And they all say pretty much the same thing, but they're nuanced a, a little bit differently. And all these passages have implications for how we must continually be revising the affairs of our lives so we can bring them more in line with the mission that Jesus has given to us. But there's a 30,000 foot big idea of Jesus' mission and our mission that will help us better understand what it means to be sent into the world in the same way that Jesus was sent into the world. And I'm gonna just tell you right up front what that is and we'll unpack it. Actually, I'm gonna ask two questions and then answer the questions. And, and basically the two questions are the same but they're slightly different. The first question is, what was Jesus' mission? And the answer to that is the mission of Jesus was to show the world the glory of the Father. His mission was to show the world the glory of the Father. So what is our mission? If we've been sent out like he has been sent to the world, uh, what was, what's our mission? Well, our mission is to show the world the glory of Christ. See, uh, Jesus' mission was to glorify his Father in heaven. Our mission is to glorify Christ. And those answers are the two points that we're gonna unpack today. Jesus' mission was to bring glory to the Father. Our mission is to bring glory to Christ. So what does all that mean? Let's uh, unpack it. Number one, Jesus' mission was to show the world the glory of the Father. Now in verse one, Jesus says, glorify the son that the son may glorify you. Verse four says, I have glorified you on earth having accomplished all that you gave me to do. 
In verse six, he says, I have revealed your name. That is, I have revealed who you really are to the men you gave me. So those verses are telling us that Jesus' mission was to glorify the Father. So why is that a mission? And, and then why is that so important? Well, it's important because the problems we face in this world, the problems facing every culture in the world today, the personal problems that you and I wrestle with, they're all glory issues. They're all glory issues. Now, this word glory is one of those overstuffed religious sounding words that when we read it in the Bible, it's so familiar to us, we don't give it very much thought. We read right past it. And when we talk about glory, it sounds so pious and spiritual. So the problem is very few people can break this term glory down into easily understandable language. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, who knows the answer? Yes, okay, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we have to be clear about this because Jesus is saying my mission was to glorify God, and in saying that, he's implying what this world needs more than anything else is to see the glory of God. I know, I can hear you, you know, some of you are thinking, oh, come on, why does the world need that? I mean, doesn't the world need something practical? I mean, come on, Charlie, look at the problems in our world. Look at the cultural crises uh, that we're facing today and the violence and the war and the poverty and the hunger and the oppression and the injustice. I mean, why are you talking about theology? Come, we, we, we need something practical. We need something that will make a difference. But Jesus comes along and he says, there's nothing more practical. There's nothing you need more than to see the glory of God. Now, why is that? Because... Our personal problems and the cultural crises we face today come from the fact that we don't see the glory of God. We don't know the glory of God, and therefore, that is the root of all of our problems. So again, what is glory? Well, the word glory means weighty as opposed to frivolous. It means substantial as opposed to unimportant. It means lasting as opposed to temporary. So to show something is glorious is to show that it lasts, that it has weight, that it is something that really matters. Like um, if you put something weighty, like a rock, into a stream of water, the water goes around the rock. Why? Because the rock that you put into the water, into the stream, has more glory than the water because it lasts, it's, it's, uh, it stays, it's immovable. If you put something light or flimsy into the water, something with less glory than the water, what happens is it just gets carried away. So the question is, what lasts in history? What really stands the test of time? If, if, if history is like the stream, like the water, what really stands the test of time? Okay, let me, let me, let's, just, let's just get real practical with this. Suppose... You're faced with a decision. You could tell the truth and pay all your taxes, or you could lie and save yourself some money. Now, and you're wrestling with that decision. So what are you doing? You're making a decision about glory. Uh, you're saying, I could lie, in which case the money is more glorious than honesty, 
or you could decide I'll pay what I owe, in which case honesty is more glorious than money. You see that? You're making a decision about what's important. You're making a glory decision. You're deciding what's more important, what really lasts, what's more, what has more value, what matters most. And these kind of decisions, these glory decisions, I'm saying are at the root of all of our problems. Now, why is that? Here's the reason. When you decide that money is more important than honesty or honesty is more important than money, you're making a, a theological decision about glory. When you decide it's more important for me to tell the truth than to make this money, you're ultimately saying that God is more important than the money. You're saying that trusting God is more important than money, that obeying God is more important than money, and that glorifies God because you're showing him to be more important in your life. But when you decide that money is more important than honesty, you're saying that God is not that important. You're saying that you are more important than God or what God says, and really you're acting as if God isn't even there, and that's an atheistic decision. Too many believers are functional atheists. Oh, we believe in God and we believe in Jesus and we believe the gospel, but we live as if God isn't there. So, so, so what really lasts if there's no God or you act in your decision-making as if there's no God? Well, what really lasts? The answer to that is nothing. Think about it. Why the deterioration of morals and ethics? Why the selfishness? Why the greed? Why the crime? Why the violence? Why the social breakdown? Well, here's why. Last night, I, I watched the uh, 1958 movie version of Dostoevsky's famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov. And one of the brothers, Ivan, he's an atheist, and he makes this statement that's been quoted everywhere. I've qu I never read the book, I just watched the movie, uh, but I've quoted this before. And uh, so he says, Ivan says, if there is no God, then everything is permitted, even crime. If there is no God, then there are no rules to live by, no moral law to follow, and we can do whatever we want. And that is what is unraveling our culture and our society today. When you take God out of the equation, then whatever I think is right is right. It's right for me, and you just have to adjust. Now, what Jesus knows, and I, I hope you know, is that unless people see that there is a God and to him alone belongs the glory, then nothing else matters. Everything is permitted. There's no basis for any kind of values unless there's a God. And nobody has ever yet discovered a convincing basis for ethics and values apart from a belief in God. It is the, it is the main problem of the atheist. I was watching uh, you know, one of these C-SPAN things with Christopher Hitchens several years back, and he, he's, a, he's a famous new atheist. And somebody put the question to him, well, if there's no God, then what is the basis of our values? And he said, hmm, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's the question, isn't it? Well, see, not only is our culture breaking down, but as I mentioned before, we personally break down if we act as if God doesn't exist. I mean, if, if we only live for ourselves, if that's all there is, if the most glorious thing 
we've got is our own personal happiness, then eventually we realize that we're irrelevant. I mean, that we don't really matter. I mean, you live, you die, you try to scratch out some kind of happiness in between, and, uh, but, but, but it seems to elude you no matter whether you're rich or poor. I mean, isn't it strange that the more well-off a culture seems to be, the more counselors there are? And the, the more unhappiness and discontentment there is? And the more suicides there are? I mean, in affluent neighborhoods, if you go to a poor neighborhood, the people there are unhappy because they're not rich. But if you go to uh, a, a rich neighborhood, they're unhappy because they know that money didn't really make things better, or they still think it, it will make things better, and all they want is more and more and more and more. Because you see, when you live for yourself, you become personally irrelevant. You don't make a difference. Again, that's a glory issue. And every one of us has to decide what really matters, what really lasts, what's really valuable, what's truly glorious, and then we need to re revise the affairs of our lives so that we can care, carry uh, through on our decision to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus knows at the root of our cultural problems and at the root of our personal problems, there's a glory problem. The Apostle Paul knows that as well. He, in the, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul traces the downward spiral of humanity and central to the breakdown, both cultural and personal, he says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things they had made. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the things they have made. Now, we can do that too. Even as Christians, we can exchange the glory of the immortal God for things that we think are more important. Now, right now, there are seismic shifts taking place in our world. And the world that we grew up in is slipping away. And I can tell you, I'm as concerned about uh, uh, those things as I'm sure many of you are. And I talk about my concerns with other concerned people, as I'm sure you do. But hear me. God, God is not saying don't be concerned about what's going on. He's not saying that. But he is saying don't be like the world. You're my holy, set-apart people. Don't exchange my glory for anything in this world. And that means we have to make decisions about what's most important. What's the most important thing for me to be thinking about? What's the most important thing for me to be talking about? What's the most important thing for me to be posting about if I'm in social, social media? Yeah, the problems facing our world today are serious problems. Lawlessness, racism, injustice, dishonesty, corruption, violence, Censoring any voice that go, opposes the party light. They're serious problems because they're all glory problems. And what's going on in our country day, today is the result of exchanging the glory of God for lesser things. What's going on in our country today is the result of our exchanging the truth of God for lies. The result, they, and the result is that God is giving us over to our godless desires. And knowing that that's going on, we have to keep revising the affairs of our lives to bring them in line with the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. The mission of Jesus was to show the world what God is really like. His mission was to reorient people to what God wants. His mission was to make much of God, to make God look good. His mission was to glorify God. And the bottom line is this. 
The church has no mission if the glory of God is not more important than everything else. We have no mission unless the glory of God is more important than anything else. So let me ask you a question. If you add up all the time you spend thinking about what you need to make your life more comfortable, plus all the time you think about and talk about politics and what's going on in our world today, if you add all that time up, is God being glorified in and through your life? That's the question. And listen, I'm preaching to myself. I always preach to myself. Like these are things I wrestle with. I'm thinking about these things all the time. To glorify God is to make much of God. To glorify God is to show by our lives that God matters most, that his plans and purposes matter most, that his will and his ways matter most, even if we don't understand why he allows really bad stuff to come into our personal life and our national life. In these difficult days, the question is, are we making much of God or are we making much of all the things that we want? Are we making much of God or are we making much of all the bad news? And Jesus comes along and he says, my mission is to show you God's glory, to show you what God is really like, to show you what God really wants for you, to show you what it means to really know God because in God alone is glory. And the way that Jesus showed us the glory of God was by asking the Father to glorify him when he died on the cross. Verse one, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He's talking about showing what God is like through his death on the cross. He says it in verse 19. He says, and for their sakes, I give myself as a holy sacrifice. Now, Jesus, by his sacrificial death on the cross, shows us, this, this is just mind-blowing. By his death on the cross, Jesus shows us that God is a God who loves us so much that he was willing to suffer the consequences of his own justice so he could show mercy to us. So he could show mercy to us. And that's mind-blowing. So number one, Jesus' mission was to show the world the glory of God. So what's our mission? Okay, anybody remember what number two was? It's like the first, but slightly different. Our mission is to show the world the glory of Christ. Back to verse 18, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So as I said, our mission is the same as Jesus' mission, but with a slight twist. Because here's the deal. Jesus doesn't send us into the world to talk about God in general. He sends us into the world to talk about Jesus as the way to God in particular. He doesn't send us into the world just to talk about God in general. He talks about, or he sends us, Jesus sends us into the world so that we can talk about him as the way to God in particular. So look back at verse 10, staggering statement. Speaking to the Father about his 11 disciples, he says, Jesus says, Jesus prays, all mine are yours and yours are mine. Here it is. I am glorified through them. I am glorified through them. He's saying the world sees my value, sees my importance, sees my centrality, sees my glory through the lives of my disciples. 
Again, to glorify something is to show what it's really like, to show how critical it is, to show how important it is. To, to glorify something is to show off its beauty, its relevance, how, how central it is to everything. So to glorify God is to make much of God. To glorify Jesus is to make much of Jesus. And Jesus says to us, I have created you and called you to myself, and I'm sending you into the world to show people my glory. Meaning, I'm sending you to show people who don't know God that I have come from the Father and to show them that I am the way to know the Father. To show them that I'm the way to know God personally. Look at verse three, Jesus prays, and this is eternal life, that they may know you as the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's our mission. We're sent into this broken world to show people, to tell people there is one true God in heaven and that this God is loving and merciful and good and just and righteous and holy. And we tell them and show them by the way that we live that Jesus is the way to knowing God and experiencing the life that he offers. That's our mission. And every Christian has been entrusted with that mission. Now, God does send some people on mission to show people in faraway places what God is really like and how Jesus is the way to know God. I mean, like the apostles in Jesus' day and others in the early church, they went out from Judea and into Samaria and into um, uh, Jude, or into Judea and then Samaria and then onto the four corners of the earth, they were sent to show and tell people that there is one true God and he has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And that has taken place all through the history of the church. The church sending out people who go to faraway places to tell them about Jesus, to glorify Jesus. And in fact, we will commission someone at the end of the service today who has that calling on their life. Now, here's the deal. Jesus has not called all of us to become traveling missionaries. God did not call every Christian to go to faraway places. Because what we see in the New Testament that there are churches full of people who were not traveling missionaries and they lived in places like Galatia and Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and they attended local churches and they took up offerings to help traveling missionaries on their way and they showed great hospitality by having them in their home. And then, but they were, they were uh, on mission in their sphere of influence and they became the hands and feet of Jesus to the people that they lived around. And these stay-at-home disciples of Jesus they were sent to the people, again, in their spheres of influence. So verse 18, as the Father sent, uh, sent me, so send I you, is that passage very much applied to the stay-at-home disciples. And most of us here are, are, are sent out on that mission to make much of Jesus in your spheres of influence at home and at, at work and with your friends and relatives and neighbors and, and new people that you meet along the way. We are sent to live in a salty kind of way. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth, meaning you're to live your life 
in lives in ways that make people outside the faith thirsty to know more, in a way that makes them curious about who Jesus really is. But I gotta be honest with you, I'm, I'm very concerned that the saltiness of the church is losing its flavor because all of the difficult things we deal with in our personal lives and all of the things that confront us on the world stage have, have become central stage, center stage. They occupy center stage in our lives. Now let me ask you this. Can you talk about Jesus as easily as you can talk about politics? Can you talk about Jesus as easily as you can whatever that social agenda is that you care so much about? Again, if you exchange the glory of God for the glory of politics or the glory of a social, uh, uh, some kind of social issue that you feel needs to take place, you're throwing shade on God. I mean, literally, you're throwing shade on God. You're treating him and his mission as having less important than the other important things in your life. And I'm concerned that we are losing our saltiness because too many of us, we're just not prepared to have a conversation about Jesus with someone of a different political persuasion than us. The politics, we, we can't hardly even talk about Jesus because they're not where we are politically. And you, you know what most unbeliever, um, unbelievers think about Christians today? They, they see Christians, and you know that you've heard this before, they see us as judgmental and critical and uncaring, and worse, now they lump being a Christian in with being a Republican, and any bad behavior on the part of Republicans causes them to become more entrenched in their rejection of Christianity. And, and it goes both ways, it goes both ways, but blending faith and politics will not help us carry Jesus' mission forward in the world. It won't. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have political opinions and, 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 and views that are important to you and concerns about what's going on, social justice and those kind of, I'm not saying that, but I am saying if you blend the two as if they're the same, you are exchanging the glory of the immortal God for something you consider more glorious, and when you do that, the salt loses its flavor. And then, if and when you do decide to try to talk to somebody about Jesus, they write you off, not necessarily because they reject Jesus, but they reject your politics, which they associate, or well, which you have associated with Jesus. Here's the deal, if your political voice is louder than your glorified Jesus voice, you will lose your voice for Jesus. So the question is, how do we make much of Jesus in our daily conversations and online? I mean, well, think about it this way. Uh, what if you began looking for opportunities where you could sprinkle salt into the, some of the conversations you find yourself in? or sprinkle some salt in the posts that you make on mine. Like you could post something like this or drop this into a conversation. Yeah, I understand what you're talking about. There are a lot of important issues in our world today, but there is none more important than knowing Jesus personally. Or what if you said, it's true. To our shame throughout the history of our country, people of color have been oppressed and treated with less dignity than they rightfully deserve. 
Jesus calls us to love all people the way God loves us. And so God, not secular government, can change hearts. I know he's changing mine. Are you interested? Or it's true, the church hasn't always been a good reflection of Jesus in our world, and it still has a long way to go. But when I read about Jesus in the biographies written about him in the Gospels, I'm drawn to him. And I, and I want to learn from him how to live my life so that other people can see how good and great he really is. Or, I get it, I get it, I hear you. If there's a God and he really is a good and loving, powerful God, yes, it is hard to understand why God doesn't step in and put an end to all the hurt and suffering in the world. But what if that's exactly what God wants us to do? What if that's exactly what God is asking us to do? What if God's primary way of working in the world is through us? If that's true, then the only way that we're gonna be able to step in and make a difference in this world is by inviting God to do his work through us. Like salty, salt in conversations. That's just some examples, but the point is to be on mission with Jesus in our spheres of influence, we have to be able to talk about our faith in conversational ways, and we have to be able to sprinkle some gospel salt into our daily conversations. We need to be able to talk about Jesus as naturally and easily as if we were talking about all the other things that are important to us. And it kind of, it, it, it really bothers me, honestly, like when I hear people go, well, you're a preacher, that's why you can talk about those things. No, you, if you spent half the time you did on all the other things that you're interested in in your life, you'd be able to talk about Jesus as naturally and easily as you can everything else in your life. But we think we can't do it. You see, rather than dogmatically trying to change people's mind, we need to learn from Jesus how to talk to people who have aggressive differences from us. And many times Jesus did that by asking questions rather than making harsh pronouncements. For example, let's say somebody says, well, I can never be a Christian. There are just too many hypocrites in the church. And you could say, I get that. But let me ask you, do you have certain standards of right and wrong that you hold yourself to? Like, like are there certain things you do and you don't do, and there are certain things that you think other people should do and shouldn't do? And when you say that, a person is gonna typically say, well, yeah, yeah. So then you ask, well, do you always live up to your own standards? I mean, do you ever end up doing something you know you shouldn't do? And to the person, they'll, most of the time they'll say, yeah. They'll, they'll say, well, of course, I'm not saying I'm perfect or anything. And then you say, well, aren't we all in the same boat? Like Christians have a standard that comes from scripture and they never perfectly, we never perfectly live up to that standard. And you have standards, but by your own admission, you don't live up to your own standards. So aren't we in the same boat? Aren't we all guilty of being hypocrites at one time or another? And then you could say, then you could ask, did you know the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament, did you know that he wrestled with the same thing? In one of his letters, he says, I don't, I don't really understand myself. I mean, sometimes I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it. And other times, 
uh, I know I shouldn't do a certain thing, and I end up doing it. And, and he cries out. He says, who can save me from this hypocrisy? Who can save me from uh, this struggle that I have? And then he goes on in his letter to show how God deals with our hypocrisy. And then you just let that trail off and see what they say next. But you just sprinkle a little gospel salt. Or let's say somebody says, well, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I think when you die, you die, and that's it. It's all over. And so you take out a little piece of paper, and you draw a circle, and you say, let's say that this circle contains all the knowledge in the universe. Now, if that circle contains all of the knowledge in the universe, then take this pen and shade in how much of that knowledge you know. And, uh, you know, typically they'll put a little dot in the circle. And, and so then you say, well, I'd say the same thing. I mean, compared to all the knowledge in the universe, neither of us know very much at all. So my question to you is this. Is it possible that outside that little dot of knowledge that you know, is it possible outside of that knowledge, there's the knowledge of God and you just don't know it? And most people will answer, well, I suppose there could be a God. Well, if they say that, now you've moved them from being an atheist to an agnostic. And then you could ask, would you be interested in what Jesus tells us about God? And if they say, no, I'm not, not really. Okay, well, if you ever get curious, I'm, I'd love to have that conversation with you. If they say, yeah, then you need to be able to talk as easily about the next part of that conversation as you do about all the other important things in your life. Having simple conversations about Jesus with those in your sphere of influence is how most of us are sent to carry Jesus' mission forward in the world. To be on mission with Jesus in your sphere of influence requires you to be able to have conversations about Jesus and your faith in Jesus as naturally and as easily as you talk about all the other things that are important to you. It requires you to talk about who Jesus is, why he came, and the difference that he's made in your life in a conversational way. And in these conversations, it's not about convincing somebody that, they're, that you're right and they're wrong. And it's not even about you getting them to pray a prayer to receive Christ. I mean, if that happens, raise a hallelujah. I mean, that's great. But it's mostly about you glorifying Jesus. It's, it's about you making much about Jesus. Making much more about Jesus than the other important things in your life and being careful to not let any of those other important things to get in the way of your ability to be able to talk about Jesus. Jesus prayed this prayer for you and me in Fellowship Greenville. He prayed, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I'm sending my church into the world. I'm sending my people into the world because I am glorified through them. Jesus' mission was to show the world the glory of God. Our mission is to show the world the glory of Christ. And so there's only one question left, and that is how will you revise the affairs of your life so you can more effectively carry forward the mission that Jesus has entrusted to you? 
Holy Spirit, come and give us the wisdom and discernment to be able to search our hearts and to look at our lives and to make any adjustments that we need to so that we can wholeheartedly, with full devotion, look for ways that we can put Jesus on display, put the light of Jesus on display in this dark, dark world. Keep us humble. May our conversations be gentle and respectful. And Father, use us as you send us out on the mission you entrusted to Jesus. Use us to make a difference in our world by the things that we say and how we live as instruments of peace and how we live as the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. And we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.